Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 260, recorded August 4th, 2010, DNS Rebinding. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist Express. If you're in tech support, solve problems fast with the leader in remote support software, Go to Assist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit gotoassist.com slash security. And by Ford and Voice Activated Sync. It's the in-car communication and connectivity system featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs. And here he is, the king of Security Now, a man who's been doing it now for five years. Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hi, Steve. I guess security really is a need. You know, you you introduced the show saying covers all your security needs. And in fact, I would argue that uh, you probably can't really get very far these days or not very safely without having that need covered. So I think in some ways it's kind of a shame that you have to be a security expert. Well, um, at least a mini security expert in order to use the internet and use your computer and that's oh leo i i I hate that we have to have this podcast yeah i mean i i love doing it but i mean i'm so annoyed that well well i'm so annoyed that that this is necessary and today's episode is an interesting indication of a different sort of reason that it's necessary we're going to talk in detail as i promised a couple weeks ago about dns rebinding which came back up into the news, even though it's 15 or 16 years old. That is the problem is it it came back in the news because there was going to be a presentation as there was at the recent black hat conference um, where there was a new approach that allowed malicious remote websites to take over people's local routers. And it used the trick of DNS rebinding. So I thought it was worth looking, sort of revisiting it. We've, I don't think we've ever really covered it in depth, which I wanted to do. But what's interesting is that this is a problem that is not about anything being broken, not about a vulnerability, not about anything even being designed wrong. It's just that the, the system we've built was never from its original concept, never built with security in mind. And there are ways to abuse technology that works the way it's supposed to Mm -hmm. in ways that, you know, the original architects weren't defending against. It just wasn't in their mind. And for example, this is so fundamental to the way DNS works that not even DNSSEC, the next evolution, not even signing the root node and not even DNS security prevents problems with DNS rebinding. Really? 
Yeah. So, so this isn't the Dan Kaminsky uh, flaw. This is a whole different thing. This is a this is a kind of a gotcha with the kinds of stuff we're trying to do. And so uh. it's it's a consequence of clever people saying, you know, if we did this a little differently, we could make something happen that people have been trying to prevent since Mozilla 2.0, which is uh <laughs> I'm wow. not kidding it. Yeah, there was something there. There, there was a uh, the technology that we've talked about briefly, but we have to cover it in a little more depth because it's tied into DNS rebinding. The so-called um, same origin policy that scripting uses, which prevents scripts from sort of being able to go do things to sites that they didn't come from. You, it's like sandboxing for scripts, and 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 there's been it was in. Mozilla 2.0 that that this notion of same origin policy was first implemented because the original Mozilla guys realized when they created JavaScript that scripts were very powerful. Well, we know that that lesson is something that we seem to visit every single week of this podcast. Um, speaking of every single week, we're this is number 260, and. It's been a phenomenal amount of controversy over in GRC's news groups about when it is that we actually finish year five and start year six. And so I looked at the calendar and actually I looked at our archive of prior podcasts. And what struck me as I was we were talking about this a little bit before we began recording is this podcast used to be about 20 minutes long. <laughs> no. The first one was 18 minutes long, and oh, they stayed about that long for for quite a while, and then began to to grow in, I guess, covering more current events. I don't think. I mean, we, we didn't were do having news in the first uh, few years. I think. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. We weren't covering that so much. It was mostly just topical right. stuff. And we didn't do Q and A's in the first few years. That's true. So we were just saying, okay, here's uh, here's how cryptography works, or here's so in a way it was just the chunk, the kind of the end chunk of the show that we still do, but now we've added a, a lot of other things. And I hope you, well, I hope you all like it. I think you know. Remember, this is the second show we ever did on the Twit Network. This is the, you know I started doing this right after Twit, and uh, half the time I did it in Canada with you. <laughs> yep, and, <laughs> well, well, on the set, I, you know, I won't ever forget standing on the set in Toronto, and you said, "Hey, Steve, um, would you be interested in doing a?" Um, uh, a podcast on, about security. I said, a what cast? <laughs> Never heard the term. That was in March of 2005, I guess. Wow. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and I think at the time when we first started, um, I didn't know how long a podcast should be. And all of the shows have gotten longer. Uh, not, not only because <laughs> we're wordy sons of guns, all of us, uh, but also in reaction to the fact that I always hated it. That I only had six minutes with you on TV. It was it was always always rushing. We never really covered the subject thoroughly, and uh, audience um, support for longer shows. I've always been saying, you know, and I'm still open to the idea: is this too long? And as long people, I think that I think what people want is it should be the length of their commute. Yes, if we, no shorter, if everyone would please drive exactly ninety minutes. <laughs> no shorter, no shorter. Longer is okay because you just stop and you pick it up. But what you don't want to do is listen to a show and you're still in the commute, and now you have to find another show. You want it's my sense, and I'd love to get feedback from people, but that's my sense of it. 
It's like it's like finishing a book when I'm in the middle of my stair climbing workout, exactly. Leo. It's nothing worse than that. It's like, yeah. okay, now what am I supposed to do? Somebody in the chat room is saying, can you tell the story of how you two met? We won't go into great detail. We've mentioned it before, but we met on the screensavers. Uh, we were covering something called the click of death, which was a problem that zip drives had. They go click, 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 and then the drive was damaged in such a way that it would damage every single zip disk you put in there. So you would you would destroy your collection as you tried to find a disk that worked. Right. And Steve uh, uh, wrote a program, Trouble in Paradise, right? Was that it? Yep. Chip. T-I-P. Trouble in Paradise. And we put you on the show, Kate Patello and I. So it was 1998. It was the early days of the screensavers. Yeah. And you and I knew of each other, but we had oh, never God, met. I'd read, you, I'd read you religiously in your InfoWorld column. I was a huge fan of Steve Gibson. So as, is, as, as has been the case in my entire career, people like Jerry Purnell, John C. Dvorak, you, you know, meet you and it's like, oh, I'm meeting an idol. It was really, really <laughs> exciting to meet you. Well, and I, my favorite memory was when when Kate discovered Shields Up. And, you know, and it was like her turn to do a segment of the show. And so you were sort of the sidecar for right. that particular phase. And she said, yeah, this is over GRC.com. And it, had, it didn't register with you immediately. And so she was showing this like this really neat thing that checks your ports. And you said, wait a minute, Steve Gibson, he's he's spin right. You know, he's the hard drive guy. And she says, and apparently security now, too. Uh-huh. So yeah, that was uh-huh. that was the beginning of that, which yeah. was fun. And I could I consider Steve one of my my best friends. And I, so you know, we're celebrating five years of shows, but we've known each other for twelve. Well, and speaking of five years, the I did the math last week where I said okay, three hundred sixty five and a quarter days per year because of you know every fourth year is leap year, so we get an extra day which we divide by four because it's every four years. You multiply, you divide that by seven days per week because i think we're all agreed that each week has seven days you never have a six i think we're in agreement on (laughs) never have an eight day week okay i would really throw things off so you divide that by seven so by seven days per week and it does not give you 52 weeks in a year it turns out it does it gives you 52 point whatever it was 197 or 179 i think now if you then multiply that by five years so exactly how many weeks would there would be in five years, you get 260.8 something or other. So rounding that up, you get 261, which would say that next week's episode, number 261, would be ending year five. So we'll beginning year six on 262. And lo and behold, our first episode that we recorded back in 2005 was on August 19th, Thursday, August 19th. And that will be episode 262 is August 19th of August 2010. We'll have a cake. So the math works (laughs) and the, I hope the controversy is finally resolved, but I do stand together. I stand corrected that for many weeks, I was saying 52 weeks a year, 52 weeks a year. And multiply that by five. It's like, uh, no, because there are those little, those little annoying leap years and they add up. So, 
Well, they only happen when you've been doing a show for five freaking years. That's why they add up. I mean, <laughs> in the first couple of years, it didn't matter. We'll be leaving that behind soon. We've got some great stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about, as DC mentions, DNS rebinding. We've got security news. We've got patches galore, of course. Oh, and we got Black Hat and DEF CON were last weekend, and lots of follow-up from that, too. Yeah, I'm dying uh, to hear not, what you think about that. Not too much fallout, so that's the good news. And, you know, I'm just getting news now that uh, we, we heard uh, that uh, India was having trouble with BlackBerry, that it wasn't secure. They were worried. Uh, it, it's, it was banned in India, now Dubai and the United Arab Emirates banning Blackberries, and now we just learned that the European Commission is abandoning its Blackberries because the, and going to iPhones huh. because they don't deem the Blackberry software safe enough, and they think that the U.S. actually has a backdoor into it. So well, yeah, well, we we have BlackBerry discussion we'll actually in our that. notes. We will talk so. about that too. Fascinating stuff. Before we get to that, can I uh, just briefly mention our friends at Ford who brought us out? We had such a great time. I know you watched a little bit of it. I did. Yeah, uh, we went to Detroit on Friday and Saturday. Friday, we uh, Leo un- in a hard hat. Yeah, unprecedented <laughs> access to uh, the Ford F one fifty assembly line. We literally went down on the line. I rode the conveyor belt. It's not a conveyor belt anymore, by the way. It's really more like a moving floor. In fact, they have scissor lifts. This is so cool that raise and lower the car so that the workers don't have to bend over or, you know, they can just, st- you know, it, it, to again, you know, because you, you don't want repetitive stress or anything. It's just amazing watching this thing. The scissor lifts goes up and down and, and the logistics. Sometime I would love to just do a, a story on the just in time logistics of making something this complex. Because there's thousands of parts. They all are there right when they're needed. The cars are not assembled. It's like not we're going to do all the black uh, Raptors at one time and then the 4x4. Four four. No. It's a complete hodgepodge of cars and yet all the parts come in just when needed. There's a point where the chassis comes up to meet the cab and the box and it's assembled and it all matches. And they've got these... Tri- it, it, it's kind of... Until you see it, it's kind of mind-boggling. We have made a special out of it. There are three specials from the uh, Ford Tour, the Ford Plant, the Ford Track, where I, due to my own operator error, crashed car. <laughs> Minor crash. Low-speed crash. Okay, I, 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 I pulled the Ford Flex into the Ford Fiesta at a little bit... <laughs> by accident. My fault. Take full responsibility. But that's at the uh, track, the second special. And then uh, we did a great one at the Cave which is the virtual reality environment they use to design cars. Then the next day, Maker Fair. All of that on uh, twit.tv slash specials uh, in high def. We streamed it live. We were having a little trouble with the live stream, but uh, the, the high def recordings look fantastic. Fantastic. Ford has always been a company about makers, so it's kind of neat to see at the Ford Museum, at the Henry Ford, see you know the, the museum itself with the history of American innovation and technology, and then see these new makers doing so many amazing things. There was this great spirit of uh, of innovation there I loved. And, of course, we thank our friends at Ford and the great Ford Sync, which I use every single day in my Mustang. Proud to drive American with that great Sync. True hands-free calling, turn-by-turn voice directions without having to purchase additional hardware. It's built in. 911 assist to give you peace of mind. Voice-activated music and podcast browsing. You say... You press the button on your... St- By the way, this is also... You don't have to take your eyes off the road or your hands off the wheel. I mean, it's, it's about safety. So you're driving along, paying attention to what you're doing. You press the button on the steering wheel. It says, bing. What would you like to do? Bing. And you say, sync. Bing. Play security now to 60. And it starts playing. Uh, it works with their iPhone. works with Android really nicely. It reads text messages to you. You can, you can use the button to send canned messages. 
uh, personalized traffic alerts and weather, take a look at the Ford Sync. You can go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com to find out more about it or just test drive a Ford Lincoln or Mercury vehicle at your local Ford dealer very soon. It's nice to be associated with Ford, I have to say. A great American car company doing great things in the 21st century. Now, moving on to security now. Uh, well, you have an update on this LNK thing. Yes. Well, Thank the goodness. big news, I mean, in terms of security updates, and I'm presuming that all of our listeners know this by now, because this happened Monday, um, as we were hoping and maybe on the border of praying, Microsoft responded with what they called an emergency out of band and that term still, it ought to be out of cycle, but, you know, what the heck. Uh, emergency out-of-band patch for this shell link vulnerability. This we've talked about uh, extensively, so I won't go into it in, in too much detail. Everyone, I'm sure, knows about it. This was the, the, the big problem where Microsoft's only solution was to disable the displaying of all shortcut links if you use their fix-it button, it would turn all of your shortcuts within your entire system into white featureless rectangles. Um, this is the, also the thing where Sukunia had come up with a, a temporary interim filter to, to solve the problem in a less um, uh, UI-disturbing fashion. Microsoft released the patch on Monday. So I would imagine that people would have seen their little yellow shield uh, appear. In any event, if you if your system didn't get notified or if you don't have uh, Windows Update set up for automatic uh, updates, absolutely, you want to get this patch installed. Um, you can, after that, safely unfix it from Microsoft's fix-it button. And if you install the Secunia temporary interim fix you can remove that from your, using the add remove programs uh list in your in control panel and uh and this little nightmare is behind us the the use of it was going up exponentially many other uses were being found aside from that the the first scene attacks so it's a good thing that this was resolved now the thing that still bugs me is that that Microsoft didn't acknowledge didn't acknowledge any problem before Windows XP Service Pack three. So in their list of systems affected, they're not even saying that Windows two thousand has a problem or Windows XP Service Pack two has a problem. They both do, as far as we know. NT does, but so I'm annoyed. That they're not saying these, you know, like everything has a problem, but these are the ones we're going to fix. They're just ignoring the fact that earlier systems have a problem, but they're not going to fix it. Well, now, we know nobody uses earlier versions of Windows. Uh-huh. They've all yeah, upgraded. We'll be talking about IE6 here in the UK oh, here pretty quickly. Um, now, I saw one mention in the, in the SANS security newsletter um, their their dean of education, I think, is his title, uh, Johannes Ulrich, who is who runs the Internet mm. Storm Center. He made and he he just there's a one little line comment that Service Pack Two is being silently supported oh, by this fix. Interesting. Now I've not verified it. I 
thought, well, okay, I care about that because I'm I'm on Service Pack 2 still with a system that once reacted badly to Service Pack 3, so I backed off on that. And uh, I checked Windows Update. It didn't have any any happiness for me, so I don't I have to pursue this a little bit further. I will, and I'll see if I can find it. And if I can, I'll let people know. I ran across some people who are, you know, saying, hey, I'm still using Windows 2000 because it works just fine. So it's like, yeah, I understand except, that. Except it doesn't, in, I mean, it, at this point. Except, yes, except it's, uh, you know, this this is a long-term threat. The, and the bad thing is even the Secunia fix won't fix Windows 2000. It will fix, to, in, in, this, in the way that they offer, um, XP Service Pack 2. So you can use it on XP, just not any earlier than XP, which is um, too bad because otherwise it's a, you know, it, it might be all we have if, in fact, Microsoft didn't fix SP2. I'm not surprised they, Microsoft, would have fixed Service Pack 2 silently if, if in fact, they did. Because um, that would just, I mean, it makes sense. Because there are people who have known problems with Service Pack 3. Yeah, I can understand saying, oh, look, we don't want to support software after a certain point. That's understandable. Software oh, yeah. after a while gets out of date and so forth. But be, just to protect the Internet, there's a certain responsibility you have if you know even if if, if there's a if uh, to use another example if, if a car is 20 years old but you discover that the brakes fail you still have a responsibility even to, if it's out of warranty even if it's out of warranty tell the owners look we, we've discovered a problem and here's the fix so uh, just for you don't have to I, you don't have to fix bugs but you have to fix security flaws you have to and i think you have to do it as long as those operating systems are continue to be used not just for the owners of the operating system but for everybody else i'd buy it i mean i could say i mean i could even see it being reasonable if microsoft said for while these oss are under our security umbrella we're going to fix them for free after that you know, right. you're going to have to pay for it. Now, of course, that would cause all kinds of problems, too. But is it if it's a matter of buying it versus always having this really bad security problem known, I'd fork over, you know, five bucks to I, get to get the patch. I can't imagine the cost of once you've got the fix for. They know what it is. They, they know what's wrong. I cannot they imagine it that it's else. so difficult to fix it for these other versions. I think it really comes down to we are trying to push Enforce. people to upgrading. Yeah, And some of it's to make money, of course, but some of it is just because we don't want to have to support these versions at all. We want well, them to be gone. To be fair to Microsoft also, we know that they have been doing a good job, I, and this is me saying this, a good job in increasing the security of this Windows platform moving forward. We've got, you know, um, address space layout randomization. We've got uh, the, the execution prevention uh, where, where they're doing more work with protect, protecting the stack. We've got UAE. I mean, there's many things that they've been doing that are enhancing the security moving forward. So it, it is, in fact, in people's own best interest where they can to move forward. And, you know, I'll I'll be on 7, Windows 7 at some point. I'll just jump over the dead carcass of Vista happily and <laughs> go, go to directly to Windows 7. So You'd be right you know, to do so, I think. I'll, yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, I think that's, that's a very good point. So the one of the things I had my eye on the most was this concern which we discussed in some detail last week but we didn't have all the details because it was upstream 
of the the formal presentation at Black Hat of this WPA2 hack or crack, which was supposed to, you know, which was it generated a lot of press and lots of people were wondering what the story is. Believe it or not, it's now being criticized within the security community as a publicity stunt. <gasps> really? I mean, it, it, it was as it, it turns out, it's exactly what I described before we knew any details last week. And the, even like people in the Wi-Fi Alliance. Now you can imagine that they have some bias of wanting right. not to believe that this was anything big. They're saying, this is not news. This is, this is, everyone knows this about the way. Was it brute force? What was it? It was, it was the idea that if you were authenticated on a WPA or WPA2, because it doesn't matter which, whether you use, like for example, a radius server for producing per client passwords, or you use a, a, a single password for the whole access point. If you're a client associated with a WPA protected access point, then the, the group wise temporal key or temporary key, the group wise temporary key, which all clients of a single access point share in order for them to do things like broadcast to each other that allows you to essentially do a, an ARP spoofing. That's all this turned out to be was ARP spoofing in order to intercept someone else's traffic. The problem is that traffic is still encrypted with their private key. I was thinking maybe these guys had come up with something. And this is why I was like withholding judgment last week. Maybe they'd come up with some way of, of changing the, what was what's called the pairwise temporary key or getting the other client to divulge it to the attacking client. They didn't, they just said, well, we can filter traffic. And I mean, like we can filter traffic that we can't decrypt. And so other security consultants, because I was, you know, wondering what the fallout from this was, they were just like saying, well, this was nothing. I mean, this is nothing new. This was a publicity stunt. So there's, there is a, there's a, a clever hack that can be used against a secured access point, which we actually did talk about years ago, where if you convince another client that that you're the destination for its traffic, it will send that traffic meant for you to the access point under its own encryption. The access point seeing that it's meant for you will then decrypt it into plain text, re-encrypt it under your key and send it to you. So you've got the other person's the the other person's traffic, the other the other client's traffic that you've received under your key, courtesy of the client, or I'm sorry, of the access point in the middle, decrypting it and then re-encrypting it. But that requires something known as inter-client communication, which is explicitly and by policy normally disallowed on an access point. All access points have an option 
to, and it's normally defaulted to prevent inter-client communication, in which case that particular problem, which has been known about for years, thus the reason that, that an access point will not forward traffic between clients, is, is normally enabled to, pre- to prevent that. So, so, again, all these guys could have done was to receive traffic that they have no visibility into, traffic directly from another client because they've done ARP spoofing, so the client is sending it to, the, to them instead of to the access point, but they don't ever get the other client's um, pairwise temporary key, which is why security consultants universally said, okay, so what are you going to do? Yes, a denial of service attack. You could use this to, to cause another client to lose connectivity. That's as, as far as anyone can see, and now we understand everything that these guys were showing, that's the limit of what this could be used for, is causing them to lose contact, another client, to lose contact with the access point by redirecting their traffic to you or to somewhere else. And it's like, oh, okay, well, and that's, and that's only if you are already authenticated on that access point. Oh. So it's, it's an insider deal. It's not somebody on the outside that, it can, that can do anything because you first, you first have to be authenticated to the access point to get the shared key. Well, forget which it. Which you then, then use for ARP spoofing. I know, it's nothing. I mean, okay. yes. Uh, yeah. so. you've, you've already got access, so now you can get access. Uh-huh. Who cares? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you got access so you can annoy somebody else who also has access uh, by causing them to like you know have to reassociate or or right. relink to the access point. Okay, big fine. Deal. So we're not worried. Um, the, the other big piece of news was that a a mistake that's been found in Apple's PDF rendering engine. When it's rendering type 1C fonts in PDF files, because a- Apple has its own PDF renderer, doesn't use uh, Adobe's Acrobat for PDFs, a mistake there has been used to create a, a vulnerability or to exploit that vulnerability to easily, I mean with remarkable ease, jailbreak just about any iPhone or iPad. And Leo, you've got more experience with this than I have. Yeah. So we did it. Um, it's funny. We did it on, um, on Sunday, uh, Brian Brushwood on Twit was brave enough to do it. Uh, I tried to do it on my iPad. And at the time there was a bug that prevented that. They fixed that. So I did it on, uh, on Tuesday on my iPad. Uh, and, uh, while there may be some little issues, the jailbreak itself seems to work just fine and be harmless. However, as you're about to tell us, the fact that you can do this is a significant security problem. Exactly. So it's weird because the the, the press was carrying this as, oh, look, now it's easy to jailbreak your phone. You'd literally go to jailbreakme.com. <laughs> That's like saying, let's go to, let's all go to hacker.com. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it's just- and, and, and. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, I went there with Firefox, just jailbreakme.com. Go with Firefox, and you see what looks like the like a little entry screen right. on an iPhone app where, you know, and it would be like a slide here mm-hmm. to jailbreak your phone. That's exactly you, what it looks like on the phone. Yeah, and you can also check, I think there's somewhere else I was able to go, like for more information, and, and what on my non-iPad or iPad iPhone browser that is on Firefox, you get this long strip of 
website or like web page that would normally be what you would see on your iPhone if you like, scrolled along with the iPhone, which explains what's going on. And it's got, you know, it's open source and GPL, this and that. And yeah, they use compression and they're so they're giving credit to where credit's due and, and so forth. The problem, though, is, well, OK, first of all. So that's what happened. That was this is also disclosed at last week's conferences. And the concern that everyone has is that you can essentially you are using this font rendering bug, which is now well known publicly to run arbitrary code which is sort of part of the font. So the code is bundled in with the font, and this mistake in Apple's rendering of the PDF causes the code to execute due to a heap or a buffer overflow, which, which is to say jailbreaking is only one thing this can be used for. This is not a jailbreaking vulnerability. This, is a, this, is, this elevates the Safari... To root privilege. Exactly. It, uh, it gives mobile Safari the ability to run as root in your phone, breaks it out of the sandbox, and then lets it do anything it wants to. That is anything the attacker wants it to do. So the the good news is there there could hardly be anything that Apple is trying to fix faster than this. You know I mean, the, I th- the funny irony is that once you've jailbroken it, there is a fix in the Sedia store, which you can now have access to. For the PDF vulnerability. So you can, <laughs> the way to fix the PDF right now, until Apple does an update, is to jailbreak your phone. And as far as we could tell, jailbreakme.com is safe. I'm not, I mean, yes. I'm not vouching for it, but it's, I know Sorek and I, I mean, th- these people are fine uh, and, and honor, honorable people. And it's legal to do so, as we know now. The DMCA, yes. It, uh, uh, Apple had been threatening people using the DMCA. And what, about a week or two ago, the ruling came down that no, Jailbreaking of your own phone is something you're entitled to do. The DMCA will not protect you. Apple says, Apple not, says. not unreasonably, we will avoid your warranty. Don't, We're still don't come crying to us, but We're still manage. We can't stop you. And you should be aware this is a secure, you know, risk, security risk. Uh, but on the other hand, this is also the fix, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Now we so, don't know what other holes are created by this either, so that's another you know matter entirely. So you jailbreak your phone, then you can use an unauthorized app exactly. to fix the to vulnerability. Fix yep. Yeah. Okay. Not funny. <laughs> you know, just put that app in the in the store and let people fix it until mm-hmm. until they the make Apple? it official. Gee, what a thought. <laughs> Well, and also in Black Hat, which gave us all kinds of material this week, um, it was revealed that there's some nasty wallpaper, which has been downloaded approaching a million times, at least many hundreds of thousands of times. Wow, I didn't realize it was that much. Yes, it's approaching a million. Jack E, J-A-C-K-E-E-Y, Jack E wallpaper from a Chinese site called I-M-N-E-T. Um, it turns out it's free wallpaper. It presents you with your choice of many copyrighted stolen intellectual property <laughs> items. Yeah. Um, and what was discovered was that it was in the background collecting phone numbers, SIM card numbers, <sighs> oh text my. messages, subscriber IDs, and voicemail passwords. Oh, boy. And mailing them back to, sending them back 
to www.imnet.us, which is in Shenzhen, Guangdong, China. Mm-hmm. So this is a cautionary note, just in general, about about not you know installing apps that you don't trust. Now, it's true that Android, as we know, is a much more open marketplace than the iPhone store. Nobody's vetting it as far as I can tell. Well, and my fundamental problem with the notion of vetting is that nothing prevents Apple from being fooled. Right. As they have been. They have. They have. Exactly. Apple has been fooled. You know, unless they receive the source code and study it, they're they're not going to be able to tell, for example, what behavior an app could develop after a certain date. This happens because all the time. There are apps in the iPhone store that do things like uh, enable emojis. They pretend to be flashlight apps, but they enable emojis. Or they do tethering. And, uh, and Apple eventually learns of these, pulls them off. But the, that's exactly the point, is that there's no real way to look at these and say, well, what is it really doing? And in fact, there was a hack that allowed uh, uh, iTunes passwords to get leaked out through a malicious app on the Apple Store. So just, you know, anytime you put applications on an operating system, I don't care if it's a phone or a desktop, you run a risk. Yes. And and I was going to also um, add that, as we know, people have heard me say this many times, even if they had the source code, and of course they don't, but I would challenge Apple's engineers, first of all, they're not going to be able to learn the source code of every app, how many gazillion there are that they're bragging about on the store. But, I mean, it's, as, as I have often said, you can be staring at code and th- th- you inherently buy into what the code mm-hmm. says it's doing. And you would, you would, your eyes would scan right across something that um, someone malicious had cleverly had the code do that you could just never detect you would you would not see it so that would create a whole new cat and mouse game of you know apple's making me give them my source code well i'm going to put something in it just to show them that i can which you know we're not going to have to go to because apple doesn't get the source yeah but so so yes leo you, you i think your summary is exactly right these are are these phones have have evolved into computers and unfortunately as we know the the thing that is the source of all of the vulnerabilities we talk about under in in, in the guise of full blown PCs and and Macs and and Unix and Linux machines is the connectivity and phones are inherently connected. That's what they're for is their connectivity, which makes so, it more desirable, frankly, to hackers. I mean, I think ultimately this is going to be the front line of security is these phones. There's ways for them to make tons of money just by commandeering the phone. Yes, and well, yes, and there's there's a, a cornucopia of of little apps that you can download that people are downloading all the time that do things, right. and I, I it, and the problem, of course, is that people are also using their phones for storing personal confidential data, right. you know, text message dialogues, and 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 their their. Uh, address books and so forth and you know there have been high profile instances where where celebrities got their their mm-hmm. um data sucked off their phone for reasons of like a dumb password you know paris hilton i think famously yep. had that happen to her because she had a dumb uh, secret question that was her dog's name which everybody knows exactly <laughs> and so so the problem is these things become repositories of where you assume 
confidentiality that you really can't assume on, on a connected device. So the, the lesson is security conscious people really need to exercise extreme self-control with the apps that they run. We would like to believe that, that the sandboxing, which Apple and Android both have deliberately engineered, is going to work. But we're seeing instances where it just doesn't. It's, you know, where mistakes made in the code break out of the sandbox, much as this jailbreak me problem with, with the PDF rendering, uh, you know, elevates Safari to full root access and then it can do whatever it wants to. It raises a really interesting question because I think people have said, oh, well, you know, the, the, the Google store isn't as safe. The Android store isn't as safe because it's not vetted. Uh, and, and people have proposed uh, that maybe there should be a vetted and unvetted store. Maybe Google should have a you know, Google approved applications or the carrier, you know, actually Verizon does that Verizon approved applications. But you raise that point that you cannot ever be 100% sure unless you demand source code. And even then it's tough. Yes. I would say that there's, there's no better example of what would end up being a false sense of security coming, coming from anyone saying, okay, we're going to, you know, put our stamp of safety. It's like, well, you're going to guarantee. Well, of course not. They would never do that. They they can't. They can't. What about uh, antivirus software? That kind of thing. Is that the next uh, thing to do? I mean, there is antivirus software in Android. There's lock, uh, lockout, something like that, um, that I've used. That that looks like it scans every download. I don't know what it's scanning for, but I don't think that would Again, solve it. It needs heuristics, so. wouldn't it? It need it, it need to monitor what's going on. Yeah, and we've got in uh, two more bullet points ahead of us is an interesting concept that was released at Blackpoint that we're going to spend some time talking about. Go ahead. It's sort of like that. Um, In the news, the UK's uh, Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, formally concluded that Google, quote, did not collect meaningful personal details. Thank you. So, yes, exactly. Um, so they have said they, they looked at what Google collected and, you know, they were one of the first people to say, we want to understand what was going on. They do. And they've essentially let Google off the hook. They did say they're going to keep an eye on what other countries investigations uncover. But their preliminary feeling is, you know, they were collecting it by mistake. They didn't intend to use it. They didn't use it. And uh, and they're sorry. So, I mean, and I think that's all true. Unfortunately, the all while the information commissioner's office seems to have a clue, uh, the UK government itself seems not to. Um, well, or they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, they've formally said that they're going to continue using IE6 against mounting pressure to get with a better browser um a more you know even eight, seven or eight under ie or maybe firefox the bad news is they made the mistakes many years ago of commissioning the creation of a large body of custom government driving software which only runs on ie6 <laughs> sorry it is locked it is locked to IE6 oh, d- platform, oh, and it will not run anywhere else. Oh, why? So they're why? saying they cannot leave IE6 without incurring a huge cost. Mm. 
It's like, well. Hey, I'll tell you a huge cost. Hey. <laughs> you want to see a huge cost? I'll show yeah. you a huge cost. Get Wait till Microsoft stops supporting that. <laughs> and then good luck to you. Well, yeah. you know, this I see this all the time, especially in line of business software uh, that just requires IE. And maybe it's ActiveX. It probably is. It's probably that they require ActiveX, right? Yep. Um, but it's just, it's a, but that's a, that should be a red flag for anybody who's, who's buying or using software. I think. Indeed. I'm sure you would agree. Um, also speaking of Dubai and, and places in the region, the UAE, um, has stated that they've even given a date as of October 11th, they are going to shut down BlackBerry service within the UAE because they're unable to determine what people are texting and sending back and forth to each other. BlackBerry's crypto is state-of-the-art. It's a properly designed public key crypto system where individual BlackBerry phones have public keys that that they use they have they have each phone contains a certificate that it uses to negotiate a secure connection to blackberry's servers wherever they're located and in canada presumably and that establishes a tunnel whose cryptography whose encryption cannot be broken um as far as anyone knows um so this is this has been a problem as you were saying before india had um, a few years ago brought up the issue. They were uncomfortable with what RIM was doing. And BlackBerry, um, the, the, the RIM folks said, well, we're not going to drop our encryption. Uh, they sent some emissaries over to India to negotiate. And no one's really sure what happened, except that, you know, BlackBerry, uh, RIM was still able to continue service. So other other countries in the region are similarly concerned that that you know these phones are going to somewhere outside of their control and who knows what's happening i mean we know i don't know what 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 rim is doing all we do know is that the technology is so safe that our own government does allow blackberries to be used um, in sensitive situations, everywhere in government, everybody in government uses black. At least the last time I was in D.C., they all yep. use blackberries. From yep. the uh, for, this was when we this was a few years ago. When five years ago, we interviewed uh, Michael Powell, who was chairman of the FCC at the time. He lived on his blackberry. Now, if the chairman of the FCC feels it's secure, I think it's probably secure. Uh, the uh, you know the uh, European Union Commission has uh. just announced that they're not going to use blackberries and use a the uh, the quote is. Uh, they've evaluated, and it's not just for security. They say for durability and running costs as well. But you got to think security is the primary concern. Following this evaluation, the HTC and the iPhones emerged as the most suitable platforms for voice voicemail centric mobile devices. As a result, the commission currently supports these two platforms, not mm. BlackBerry. Well, and of course, those are generic email clients where you configure them to connect to whatever server wherever. So they could run their and, own, I guess, and not have to worry about going through Canada, the RIM servers in Canada and so forth. Yep, exactly. And so so that means though that those those email servers can then be monitored and I think watched. That's what's, and, yeah. Yeah. That's 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 really what's going on. It's not that they're insecure, it's that they couldn't monitor them. They couldn't yeah. watch. Well, if you have, if you, for example, you have two BlackBerry phones in the UAE and they are texting to each other, 
that sets up two very secure encrypted connections back to RIM, and it's only there that the that the text is decrypted and then re-encrypted and sent back out to the other phone. So nobody anywhere in between except at RIM is able to see what's going on. So not only can can no other extra government forces monitor the channel, but it is the case that back there at BlackBerry, that those communications are briefly decrypted as they're being re-encrypted and sent to the other phone. So there's a vulnerability there from a state secret standpoint. It mm-hmm. must be, uh, I guess it's possible for, for corporations and no doubt the government to run its own servers. Um, I don't know what the architecture is fr- from that standpoint, but um, yeah, they, uh, have, but, they but, have these BIS the servers that they could run. Yes. And I don't know whether that still runs through BlackBerry or, you know, how the, how the uh, security architecture works. Right. Because you would think that, you know, governments could do that. I mean, like the UAE could do that, except obviously that's not an option. for. They say, and, you know, this is why the UAE is banning it. They have their own uh, state-run telecom. It's a Telesat, I think is what it's called, or E-Telesat. And they say that because it still has to run through Canada, they can't, Mm. they can't support, they won't support it. October 11th, they're going to cut off email, internet access. There's there's half a million users in the UAE. When I was in Dubai, everybody had Blackberries. But they love yeah. iPhones. So interesting. Yeah. Also at Black Hat, an interesting, and this is what I wanted to talk about, um, an interesting concept uh, called Blitzableiter, uh, which is German for lightning rod. Love it. Um, presumably, I guess it was named because uh, what it does is it's a an interesting approach for making flash secure. The idea that it turns lightning into just a flash or something. So lightning rod. Uh Um, And it's an interesting concept. And from a, from a security standpoint, I really like it. Um, Which is why I wanted to to give it a little bit of time and and talk about it. The concept is that it, it, it's a sort of an intermediary, which, which reads a flash file a a flash movie as they're still called um and and parses the file into essentially a meta language into sort of an its own intermediate representation and then builds that back into a flash file and this is something this is a, a technique that has been around for years it's one way, for example, in the case of internet packets, where where there's a concern that 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 network packets could be in some way be malicious. The idea is you never let a packet cross from a an untrusted area into a trusted area. Instead, you have something in between, which which interprets the packet as basically breaking it down into an intermediate language, into some description of what this packet is supposed to do. You then discard that packet completely, and using the description only, you build a new packet that does the same thing. And the beauty of that is 
things you don't know about, mistakes that are being made, for example, um, deliberately created in the original packet, they get flushed away by this reinterpretation. First of all, if the interpreter looks at the packet and can't understand something, well, it's probably been malformed. So it ought to just be dropped. It's like a bad packet. But if everything seems to be okay, the act of it's 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 as if it's as if someone who couldn't lie was being used as a proxy and received some information and then turned around and told it to someone else. Well, if that person can't lie and has knowledge of the truth, then they're a filter. They're they're going to prevent a lie from passing through them. Similarly, if this interpreter is is designed to build benign packets from a description of what a an incoming packet does well it's going to it's going to prevent any sort of badness from getting through well that's what these guys have done with flash they have a um it's uh it's gpl'd it's on uh it's on google in in uh in in google's code base is this this work is being developed they don't have a complete interpretation of of shockwave flash at this point they've got a the a large body of it done but it literally discards the original file so uh, if you want to it, it's a it, it's a um available as an installation at this point I'm not recommending people use it. I think it's too immature, but it works with, it integrates with NoScript running on Firefox. And so the idea is that if you, if you ran some flash, it would, that flash never hits the actual um, Adobe interpreter. Right. This thing gets it first and breaks it down into what it, in, into what the flash is supposed to do and essentially understands what it's supposed to do, discards that file, the original file completely, and then recompiles a new flash file from that intermediate description, which is then what the flash interpreter runs. And so you are in, in the same way that, that, that I described with internet packets you're 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 protected because somebody in between said okay this is what this is supposed to do and this rebuilder essentially it well you're not using the original file so tricks like you know buffer overruns and and things that are depending upon particular characteristics of the interpreter to to be breakable end up not making it through this sort of this purifying process. Hmm. So it's a, it's an interesting notion and I I'll bet we see things like this in the future because it's a very powerful concept. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, somewhere, I think it was, I was on one of the Twitch shows that I was listening to. I heard, um, some guests ranting about <laughs> might've been Paul actually, uh, about reflection from the iPad. I think, in fact, I think it was Paul. I think Paul Therott was saying, you know, he, he's on a plane and the only thing he can ever see in his iPad is his own face. Yeah. Cause and, it's, it, it is, it's a, it's glass. It's a very reflective surface. As you can see, I'm reflecting our lights right back at you. It's very reflective. And so I just wanted to make another pitch for 
this I love, I L U V anti glare film. I have it on both of my iPads. Every iPad owner who sees it says, Oh my God, where'd you get that iPad? I say, no, no, this is the same iPad. If I peel this back, you'll see, you know, yourself looking at yourself. But I mean, it, it is a pain to get on because, you know, it's one thing to like put an anti glare film on something the size of a phone. It's much more difficult. I mean, it is really difficult and the stuff's not inexpensive and you'll probably go through some getting it on right. The, 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 I love Andy glare. You get two per package. Oh, it's and, not, it's so it's not a, uh, a sheet that goes over it. Oh yeah, it is. Oh, it is. Okay. Just, but getting it right is hard to do. Well, it, it's, it's, first of all, you got to get the surface clean. Right. Then, then the problem is peeling the backing off of the anti glare film inherently you're, you're like peeling it apart that generates static electricity. Right. So then every bit of dust right. in the neighborhood comes rushing <laughs> yeah. to, you know, to it. it. I mean, it really is a pain. And then, then you got this big sheet, which you have to get exactly aligned correctly. And I realize I'm not selling this very well, but I'm wanting to <laughs> caution. I'm wanting to caution people. I mean, it is such a mixed blessing, but the, the upside is if you can get it done, oh, it's unbelievably good. I mean, it's it's the biggest mistake Apple made, I think, is this high gloss, you know, mirror finish glass on the iPad. I know that's what Apple likes. Yes, it's sharper and crisper and more wonderful. But boy, it's annoying when I look at somebody else's iPad. Oh, and also, of course, everybody else's iPad just looks like they're they're fingerprinting they're they're fingerprinting with their with their body grease all over it, and so the anti glare really does a good job of hiding uh, fingerprints as well. I just I can't recommend it highly enough. I wanted to just to to get it out into the ether after listening to Paul ranting about you know how tired he is about. I mean, he was really ranting about. It. I thought, okay, you know, I just got to say. This anti-glare film really does work, and it is really wonderful once it's in place. And then you never have to worry about it again. Getting it down right is a real pain, but it's possible. I've done it it several times. I-L-U-V, right? And Amazon sells it. ilove.com sells it. I think it's i-l-u-v.com, but Amazon also sells it. And uh, it's less than 20 bucks, I think, for two sheets. And, you know, you'll need to. Because the first one will be a learning experience, <laughs> uh, but uh, it just it does work. Right. Um, I'm I'm here to, to tell you. Good to know. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm ordering it right now. Good. I think it's it's worth trying, Leo. It really makes a difference. Um, I had a fun story just because the guy's a little bit over the top. Greg Sheeler says, "Well, I can't believe it. I'm now one of the masses contacting you to tell you what a great product you have." Speaking, in this case, of Spinrite. He said, here's the story. I had an upset coworker. Her home PC would no longer boot Windows XP after a power outage. I offered to help. After identifying the point of failure during boot up, I realized that something was wrong with the hard drive. I thought about moving the drive to another PC so that I could check it out. But I didn't have a PC available with the correct connections. And frankly, I was trying to avoid spending $89 for your product. I I finally gave in. There was nothing else to do. I purchased Spinrite 6 
not really convinced that it would make any difference. I thought I had just wasted $89. I let Spinrite run overnight. In the morning, I rebooted the PC, and it came right up into Windows. I'm a convert. I realized that I just can't be without this tool in my side business, which is PC repair slash web design in my toolbox. I'm now saving up to get the site license. Great job, Steve. Greg. And Greg, thank you very much. All right, our topic, DNS rebinding. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Steve Gibson is our security guru, as always. and That's me. We <laughs> couldn't do it without him in our, almost into our fifth, sixth year now. Five years we're winding up here of great shows. One and of these weeks. One of the things we do thank is the people who have sponsored the show over the years, including Citrix, who has been a great support for not only this show, but all of the shows on the Twit Network. Of course, they have a lot of products, which is nice. They've got GoToMeeting, GoToMyPC, uh, go to go to web webinar. I think it's called. They have uh, go to training and for people who listen to this show, probably the most interesting product. Go to Assist Express. If you're in tech support, your clients rely on you for fast and reliable service, and you need to use the best remote access software to get that service to them. There are other choices. I know that, but I want you to take a look at the one I use. Go to Assist Express. Recently named the market leader worldwide in remote support by Frost and Sullivan. They focus on this sector. Uh, they're the number one remote support solution worldwide because it's easy to use. It's affordable. It's secure. 128-bit SSL end-to-end. There's no need to pre-install the software on your customer's computer either. That's really handy, especially if you're working with, as I am, family and friends. They call with a problem. I say, great, go to this website. It takes them 30 seconds to download and install it, and now I'm in, and I can instantly start supporting them online. Lots of features, too, for the support professional, up to eight sessions at once. You can do unattended sessions if your client permits it. Uh, There's, of course, 24-7 customer support. It runs on Mac and PC, so you can support cross-platform. That's really nice. Really, really nice. Um, In fact, I I think that's the only one that does that. Um, you can find out what software is running. You can drag in it, you know, operating system and security software. So you know what, what's going on. You can drag and drop fixes, installs, whatever from your system to theirs. You can even give them control of your system and say, this is what it's supposed to look like. <laughs> Go try it free for 30 days. Go to assist.com slash security. Go to assist. A S S I S T.com slash security. I spell it because I know we geeks sometimes have poor spelling. We're uh, creative. In our spelling, G-O-T-O-A-S-S-I-Single-S-T. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank them so much for their support of uh, security now and invite you to give it a try. I think you'll like it. All right, Steve, DNS rebinding. What's the story here? So the problem has been understood for um, quite a while. The We need to step back a little bit and talk about what's called same origin policy, which, which is sort of a fancy word for same site policy. So we can just, you can think of same site policy as, as what this is really about. The guys who were doing Netscape Navigator 2.0, who put JavaScript into web browsers for the first time, they realized that scripting was very powerful. They got that part right. And that essentially when you went to a website, you were, 
and downloaded a page which contained JavaScript. This JavaScript was going to run in the browser and it could do lots of things. What they wanted to prevent was it doing anything to other websites on behalf of the user. So the, because for example, you could, you could query other objects. You could, you could, I mean, the scripting was, was, has, you know, it's a language that is, is very powerful and flexible. So they said, okay, how do we constrain the script so that, that it's not going to get up to any other mischief. And they said, well, let's let the script only deal with the same site. That is the site that it came from is the only server domain name that, that it's able to access. And, and so this notion of, of same origin policy, that is the origin where, where, where the script originated, the origin of the script is, is a constraint that all browsers since then have imposed. Some of them do it to different degrees and different resources have different degrees of sort of like levels of enforcement. For example, origin is supposed to mean the same domain and port and protocol. So for example, if you got a document over HTTPS colon slash slash Amazon.com, then the script could not do anything to HTTP colon slash slash because that's a different protocol, HTTPS versus HTTP. So it's got to be the same protocol, also the same port, although it turns out IE doesn't enforce the port side. And, and for example, cookies don't obey the protocol side. So cookies that you transact over HTTP will also be transacted over HTTPS as long as the domain is the same. So, so these things are understood, and this has been sort of evolving along for, for some time. The problem is that, that DNS creates a relatively weak link, or to use the, the fancy term binding, a weak binding between the domain name and the IP. That is, that's what DNS does, is it binds a domain name to an IP. So that, so that as we know, you, you ask DNS on the internet, wherever it is, what's the IP for this domain name? And some sort of a process goes about resolving that domain name into the IP, and you get an answer. So it's been understood, though, that there are some problems created with this. And this has also been known since um, about 14 years. It was in 1996 that the first DNS rebinding attack um, was first seen, and it was used against the Java virtual machine. The idea there was that, and we discussed this briefly a couple weeks ago, when you ask for the address, the IP address of of a, a DNS domain, you can receive more than one 
um, IP addresses in return. This is often used for load balancing. For example, I think if you ask, I'm trying to think, I think if, like the IP for Amazon, you don't get one, you get like three or four or Microsoft. And every time you ask, the, the server rotates them so that the, the one that's sort of first in line is what the browser will use. But the point is, if, it, if there's a problem with that server's overloaded or it can't make a connection, it'll go to the next one. Well, what some clever hackers realized was that they could, they could return a, the actual IP address for a malicious site as the first address and a local IP like 127.0.0.1, which is the local host IP, for the second address. So when the, when the browser attempted to get another resource from the malicious server, it would send a reset packet. It would send a TCP reset packet back to the browser denying that connection on the IP that it wanted to use. Well, the, the, since the browser had received a number of IPs, or at least two, it would go to the second one, which in this case was 127.0.0.1, which is, the I, which is sort of universally, it's called the local host IP. It, it's, it's always used to refer to that own, that, it, that own machine. And what that did was that gave Java, the Java virtual machine, something by design it should never have, which is socket-level, network-level access to your own machine, which hackers had all kinds of fun with until it was understood that, that this was causing a real problem. So what happened that got this into the news just recently is that the... Um, uh, another new vulnerability was discovered in routers that hadn't been s- suspected before, which was, okay, now get this, the router will obey connections aimed at its WAN IP from the LAN. So the WAN IP is the IP assigned by your ISP. The public one. Public one. Exactly. So it's like whatever, you know, 24.192.345.789. The LAN IPs, those are the private ones, the 198 or the 10. Right. Right. So, So the idea is that normally when you connect to your browser, you, um, like you want to get you want to do administration on your browser you you'll you typically use its gateway address 198 right. or uh, 192.168.0.1 right. or .1.1 or whatever the the which is typically the the same ip that it uses for its gateway it's it has a web server running in it and so you 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 point your browser at that ip and that brings up its ad, admin interface well because rebinding is a problem, th- there has there have been protections put in place historically against against by 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 browsers against being fooled by having the um, the the script able to use local IPs to access your browser. So let's let's 
step back a little bit and understand how that works first. Because the idea would be you, you browse to a malicious site. You don't need to press any buttons, click any links, do anything. You just download a page from the site. Or what's even more disturbing, a web ad is served by a malicious site. So you don't even have to go to a site. You can simply be surfing around benignly on the Internet and and a, a web ad is displayed, which is, after all, a you know, a, a, a browser document. And we know that those can contain scripts because they often are flash, which has got some script running to show you a flash ad it can also be JavaScript. So the idea is when you're, when your browser asked for the IP address of, you know, attacker.com, it received the, 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 a valid IP address the first time it asked then in running the script, the script says, oh, I need something else from attacker.com. So what happens is the, your computer makes a, um, another request for the IP address of attacker.com. The reason it does that is that, is that your browser has its own DNS cache, but... But plugins like Flash have their own. So even though your browser knew the IP address of attacker.com, Flash, the Flash plugin, that it, it technically the term is it had, they have separate DNS namespaces. So the, the Flash plugin or Java or Silverlight or whatever, they're not privy to, for example, Firefox's DNS cache or even your system's DNS cache, they've got their own. So they'll make a request. When, when that second request is made, instead of returning the IP address of the site, it returns the, an IP address that is, is probably your router's gateway, like 192.168.0.1. So now what happens is, the this same origin policy we were talking about, which prevents a script from having access to different domains, now what it has is it says it, it asked for attacker.com, which it's just been told is 192.168.0.1. But attacker.com is where the script came from. Because that's where the browser originally loaded it from, which means that the script is came from attacker.com. Now this flash plugin believes that attacker.com is your gateway, is your router, ah. which means which means it has full permission within the same origin policy to do anything it wants. And so it's able mm-hmm. to establish a web browser session a web connection to your router log in without you knowing it assuming that you didn't change your username and password it can typically identify the the brand make and model of your router from the greeting page the login page that tells it what kind of router you have make and model it then looks up in its own little dictionary the default username and password and 
more often than not, about half the time, apparently, it's able to log on. And so, so that's the way same origin policy is broken. Now, some browsers and plugins protect against this because this, again, has been known for a long time. They block 192.168.anything.anything. They block 10.anything.anything.anything and the 172.16 through 172.16. What is it? 24, 29. I can't remember what the second um, byte of that is. But, you know, basically the RFC 1918 is where those define those three networks. They're smart enough not to allow that. So this problem was believed to have gone away. It turns out it crept back in in a different form. And that's what this hacker revealed last weekend at Black Hat, which is not only can you browse to your web your router's web browser using the private gateway ip 192.168.whatever.whatever or whatever it is you can believe it or not also get there using its public ip that is the wan ip the public ip of the browser even if it has been disabled even if You've specifically configured your router not to allow WAN side access. The way the stacks are written in the DDWRT and OpenWRT browsers, these these aftermarket firmwares and some of the standard manufacturer firmware will still allow the browser to respond from the from inside the network if you use the IP from outside the network. And so the next generation attack that was revealed last week, which I'm sure all of the various firmwares are in the process of of scrambling around to fix right now, solves it. Well, what it does, it gets around the the blocks against internal LAN access IPs by using your public IP, and of course, it the remote DNS server gets your public IP because that's the IP from which the request comes to it. It gets emitted by your computer asking for the IP address of attacker.com. Well, that comes from your public IP. So it's able to, to return the, the public IP to the script running in a plugin, which then knows how to get around this the, the use of private IPs on the LAN to access your router. So, I mean, this is the kind of complexity we're dealing with in this day and age because we've, we've made our systems so complicated. It's, uh, I mean, it's just like one more little hole that's been found that we now have to scramble around and patch. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that no script had some built-in protection for this, um, that is for prior types of attacks like this. Um, they're very, very close to releasing version 2.0 of NoScript. I think we're at 1.9.9.96. We're just about to roll over to version 2.0. And 2.0, I was looking at the release candidate log at at rc7 uh, and then eight 
they've just added the a, a new feature which will which will block this next type of attack as well. There's something very cool that I never really looked at in NoScript called ABE. ABE uh, stands for Application Boundaries Enforcer. And if you go into NoScript Options and then Advanced, under the Advanced tab, there's an ABE sub-tab, and there's actually a little rule-based firewall that that there's a page of documentation about it if you if on the net you can go to noscript.net/abe abe and and learn about this but this is built into noscript and it allows some interesting restrictions to be put on what your browser is able to do they're not normally um, enforcing very many rules. There's a default rule that prevents this kind of problem that we were the first generation type of rebinding attack against for, for, that your browser would launch against a, a, any other machines in your local network. And by the way, this doesn't only have to be launched against your router. Essentially, what th- these rebinding attacks allow is is your computer to serve as a proxy that's then operating inside your network and with script running in it that potentially has access to any of the machines in your network, even, for example, to Windows file sharing, where behind your router, you might believe that file sharing is safe because your router is going to protect you. But if you've got, if you've, if, if something has set up a beachhead in your browser which then has access to your network. And this is specifically what same orange, same origin policy is designed to prohibit. But if that's broken, then you've got something running in your browser that has visibility into your entire LAN, which is frankly terrifying. Yeah, no kidding. They should call yeah. it Honest Abe. <laughs> that would be good. Keeps you honest. <laughs> Keeps the browser honest. So we have, um, we have, Essentially, this DNS this DNS problem, which DNSSEC doesn't protect us from, um, it takes advantage of the fact that our systems have gotten complex, so that they're they're sort of all doing their own DNS fetches and and not taking advantage of the DNS knowledge that different pieces of the system have, which allows the same domain to be known by multiple IPs, and if some of those IPs are within your network, then scripts which have been deliberately re- restricted against being have, uh, against having access to anything but the domain they came from, well, they then believe that the domain they came from is whatever machine inside your network they want access to, this makes it possible. Hmm. And Flash and java both have socket level capabilities meaning they can open connections to you know low level network connections are not re- re- uh, constrained to just web based accesses they can open network level connections to for example email servers within your network and then use your email connect your email server to send spam out or do whatever it is they want to and they can have a persistent connection to a remote attacker who's got now persistent access um, um, to your machine, essentially using your machine like a proxy into your network. So, frightening stuff. 
And it sounds like another reason to use no script. <laughs> yes. Um, I just keep, we keep coming back to remember that, that all of this depends upon scripting. Um, in some cases, it depends upon third-party plugins like Silverlight or right. Flash or Java. But the, in general, the, I would say the, the pervasive takeaway is trust as little as possible. That is, no script um, ought to be there. You ought to not use, have, have scripting on unless you know you need it mm-hmm. and then turn it on selectively. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as you know, as we said at the top of the show, it is really too bad that this kind of, of, of real, I mean, you could say, call it knee jerk paranoia uh, is necessary, but here's another example of, of something that really does work. That was mm-hmm. demonstrated that no doubt is, 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 you know, people are trying to exploit right now, until people get their browser firmwares updated. And by the way, if you are using DDWRT um, and OpenWRT, uh, it's very likely that in, unless you've updated your firmware recently, you have exposure to this. So keep an eye out for updated um, firmware that specifically corrects against these latest DNS rebinding attacks. And I would guess that DDWRT uh, variants, like the tomato, I think tomato is based on DDWRT, probably would also have the same issues. So yeah. if, you're, if you've if rewritten your browser firmware, you can check there, too. And they're telling me in the chat room, NoScript 2 is out. Oh, no kidding, because yeah. I looked just yesterday and it wasn't. Well, they oh, said, yay. Who knows? They say it is. Great. Yeah. I, I, I believe them. Their chat room are... <laughs> they're, they're rarely wrong. <laughs> Although they're when they are, top. they're really wrong. <laughs> in that case, everybody, NoScript 2.0 is out. If you're a NoScript user, I would consider jumping to it. There's It does something really interesting. You might wonder how it how it could block an IP that it doesn't know about. That is, it has to block access to the WAN side IP. What what NoScript 2.0 does with the permission of the person running the site, there's a site called secure.information.com. I-N-F-O-R-M-A-C-T-I-O-N.com. In fact, Leo, if, if you if, if in a browser right now, you go HTTPS, mm-hmm colon slash slash secure s e c u r e dot i n f o r m a c t i o n dot com information slash i p echo what you will get is your public ip let's see if it works yes now no script 2.0 does that. Uh, silently, when it runs, it makes a connection um, over SSL using that URL that allows it to know the IP, the WAN side IP of a of a private LAN, which then, with updated rules, it's it's updated its Abe rule set hmm. to include this additional information so that, and I think there's a checkbox. I was told there would be a checkbox WAN IP question mark local checkbox, which hopefully is enabled by default. I'll know certainly by next week, cause I'm going to jump and go get no script two Oh, and that, that provides protection immediately against this, no matter whether your browser is vulnerable or not, as long as you're surfing from, 
no from a no script enabled system. And in fact, there was a, some interesting conversation that I saw in their forum where they were talking about how no script is been incrementally adding so many good features like the click jacking prevention that we talked about a while ago. And now, now these features that frankly, even if you told no script to globally allow scripting, which of course goes against the only allow scripting for sites you trust rule. But the point is it's doing so many other things to, to protect you that it's still very useful. Yeah. No, yeah, and absolutely. Then, then it's not a problem for people. It's like you know, that's your kind mother, of how I use it. I, I, I say, go ahead, <laughs> do anything you want. But it's still catching these, these, you know, click jacking, uh, and now this uh, DNS rebinding stuff and, like and, that. And remember tab nabbing. We tab have tab nabbing, <laughs> click jacking, and DNS rebinding. It's one of the menagerie we have. Indeed, Steve. Always a pleasure. Steve's the greatest. Don't forget, grc.com is his website, where you can find s- the fantastic Spinrite. The world's finest hard drive maintenance utility. You must have it. And, of course, all the free stuff like Shields Up and all his free programs. He's also on Twitter now. SGGRC is his main, you know, chat with Steve thing. SGPAD for pad updates. And Gibson Research is the official Twitter account. But, you know, you can find all that at GRC.com. Next, next week, Q&A. So leave your questions at GRC.com slash feedback. While you're there, you can get 16 kilobit versions of the show. I see him. I see you gesticulating. What is it? 261, baby. We've confirmed it. That's the last episode of year five. (laughs) It's been the last episode of year five for a while now. (laughs) Finally, the end of year five. I've been waiting for this. Uh, 16 kilobit versions of the show, transcripts, everything you need at grc.com or twit.tv slash SN. That's the uh, canonical webpage where you can get subscribed to the iTunes feed. We do audio and video now. Uh, high and low quality video, depending on your device. It's all there. It's all, it's all there. high. It's all high quality. Leo. <laughs> it's all high quality stuff. Only a high quality. Nothing podcast. but the best content from Steve. Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Now, I won't be. No, no, you will. I will. Uh, you, we just we just. You're my hero. Leo. Right. You're, you're my hero. You're always leaving just after the podcast gets recorded. <laughs> I am so I, tonight and getting back Tuesday night. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time. On Security Now. Security Now.